0: Got your Bibles this morning. We're going to take the next two Sundays uh, before we get into our next series. I guess we'll have a two-part series this Sunday and next Sunday. And I want to look at two encounters, two two men that are known perhaps as two of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel. And uh, look at what happened on the backside of the desert with each of these. uh, We'll look at Moses this week and we'll look at David next week, and then we'll begin a new series um, in a couple of weeks. But if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 3. The message is entitled, Let's Do This, but let's stand as we look at the Word of God together. We'll read the first uh, first six verses of the text and see a little bit of what's going on in the context as well. If you found your place there, he says, uh, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer. I don't think you would have had to have told me that. I think I would have been uh, maintaining a a distance there. But he said, do not come closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy, holy. Ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Father, we ask today that you would do something new in our lives. That as we get ready to begin a new church year, for many a new school year, Lord, that we would see you begin to do a new work in our hearts and in our homes, in our community, that you would use us in this world. Lord, we do lift up our team that's in Kentucky ministering this morning and pray that uh, they would show the love of Christ to broken hearts and ultimately point them to the one who heals and restores. And Lord, that we'll hear great testimonies of how you worked there, but also of how you work here. And all around the world today, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. A Hall of Fame coach by the name of Lou Little, his name was actually Luigi Piccolo, but he changed his name in the early 1900s because he was a little bit embarrassed and the world being at war at that time, he didn't like his Italian name, so he just went by the name Lou Little. And he was famous later on. He, he coached the, um, the team at Columbia that actually won the Rose Bowl over Stanford, one of the biggest upsets. I know Georgia was in the Rose Bowl this past year for the first time in like 75 years or something. But he, 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 it was one of the, the biggest upsets of his day, and it kind of made him famous as a coach, a 7 and nothing win over Stanford in the Rose Bowl. And uh, he, he, ended, he was the coach who ended uh, Army's uh, four-year winning streak during the kind of the World War II era, I guess Army could just kind of recruit who they wanted to right back then and, and so Army was dominant for a four year period and and he was the coach there at Columbia who ended that streak and so those were kind of his hall of fame uh claims to fame, if you will but when he was asked about one and, and he's been been uh, passed away for many decades now or several decades but but when he was asked about one of his greatest Memories in coaching it wasn 't one of those two moments. He said it was a moment back in the 1920s when he was not coaching at Columbia, but he was actually coaching at Georgetown and with a with a young football team there and he said that he was uh, aware that a player on his team, his father, had passed away, and so he wanted to go and, and just see if there was anything he could do for this young man and he said, "Look, you know is there anything that I could could do to, to help to minister to your family or anything like that at this time. And, and the young man said, well, my because this young man never got playing time. You know, he kind of got in at the end of the fourth quarter. I was that way in high school, right? You, I, I get in at the end of the fourth quarter. That's when I get my playing time. And, and so he, he would get in at the end, those games that were out of hand. But he said, my dad would just love, would have loved for me to start one game. True story. He said, "Can I start this game against Fordham? The upcoming game against Fordham." And the coach said, "Okay. Well, you know you're not one of my better players, but you might only be in for one or two plays. I'm going to let you start." And so the young man got to start. Man, he made a great play on the first play of the game. That followed on the second play of the game, and the coach said, "Well, as long as he's playing well, we're just going to leave him in the game." And this young man had a phenomenal game, made a lot of great plays on defense. The coach left him in the whole game. And afterwards, he said, son, I don't understand. I've never seen you practice like that. And at the times that we have been able to insert you into the game, said, I've never seen you play like that before. What got into you? And he said, well, have you ever noticed whenever my father would come to games and practices, if you ever saw us together that we were walking hand in hand, that I would walk him everywhere he went. And he said, I didn't notice that. I I thought that he might have a handicap of some kind. He said, well, see, my dad was blind. And so he was just hearing everything but not seeing. And he said, today I realized that for the first time, my dad was watching me play. Now, theologically speaking, I don't know if his dad could look out of heaven and see the game or not, but here was a young man who assumed that for the first time that his father, who had never seen him play, was actually watching. And it motivated him to do more than he had ever done. How much more should we as believers, when we know our Father is with us, when we know that our Heavenly Father is Watching us, that he is beside us, how much more should we be moved to say we want to do what God has called us to do? We want to be involved in his plan of redemption in this world, touching the nations, touching our community, touching our home for the glory of God. God was letting Moses know, I'm watching I've seen what's going on. If you go back to the end of chapter 2, we see a reminder that God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. God knows what's going on in this world. He's not oblivious to it. We, we don't have some kind of deistic understanding that God has is, is kind of put everything in order and now he's standing back just letting things happen. God is involved and He's doing something in this world. He wants to do it in us and through us. You know the story of how Israel got here. Joseph was sold into slavery, but yet God would took and we'll look at his life in the upcoming series. But God had taken what the devil meant for bad and what his brothers meant for bad, and He had used it for good and for His own glory. And Joseph had been used to save his father and his brothers. And What would become of the nation of Israel eventually, but now they were slaves in Egypt. There was a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph, and they had been multiplied in numbers. God spared, as as Pharaoh got nervous and was having babies put to death, God spared the life of Moses. Moses, because of his temper, finds himself running away and on the backside of the desert, probably feeling like he was far from God and that God was far from him. And now we have this Beautiful story of God calling Moses back. God sees, and God knows, and God has a plan. Now, we kind of grow in our understanding of that plan all the time. We come to a place where we understand that there is a God, that he is for real, and that he is here with us. We come to an understanding, as many tracts that we might have read or passed out to others to share the gospel, say that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And I believe that with all my heart. God does have a plan and a purpose for our lives. But as we continue to grow and understand that it's not just that God has a plan, ultimately we discover that you and I are His plan. We are His plan for today. Now, ultimately, his plan is revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus handed the keys over to the church. Jesus said that I'm going to be with you through the Holy Spirit of Christ who dwells in us, but we become God's plan in this world. I love the song by Matthew West as he cries out about the injustices and he looks around the world and he says, God, why don't you do something? With with all that's going on in the world today, as we see people that are broken and and nations that are broken and families that are broken and people that are hurting, and he cries out again in the song, God, why don't you do something? And then it's as if he hears God respond and says, I did. I did do something. He says, I created you. I placed you in this world as my something, my someone who's going to make a difference. Are we tired of a sin-sick world brokenness all around us some of you tired of the environment in your workplace tired of the environment in your school tired of the political environment in this nation and you're saying god when are you gonna do something are you saddened by the lostness in this world you are the something and we need to discover what his purpose and agenda is for us and we need to do this be about what he's called us to be about. We need a let's do this mentality where we shake off lethargy and get in on God's plan of redemption in the world. How do we do that? How do we experience that? I think we can learn so much from Moses here in the backside of the desert. Some of you might feel like that. You feel like you're somewhere in the wilderness spiritually, that your soul has just been kind of in, in, in a dry land or a dry season of life and it's time for you to experience his work in and through you again. Notice that, first of all, Moses had an encounter with the true and living God. The true and living God who created this world and had been revealing himself in different ways. Now he's getting ready to put it all in print. He's going to use Moses to do that. Moses had an encounter with the true and living God. Now, I have to confess I use that word, encounter, way too often. If I look back at my journal entries, if I look at my sermon notes, in fact, if you and I were to go back and look at my sermon outlines, we would see that word, encounter, again and again and again. And I can't help but think that it's because as we go through the Word of God, that's what's happening again and again and again. People are encountering the true and the living God, and as a result of an encounter with God, their lives are never the same again. God changes them through this divine encounter. Moses has an encounter here. We just read about it in the first six verses there. He's shepherding the flock of God for his father-in-law so many times We have an encounter with God because we're simply doing what we're supposed to be doing at the time. We're doing the job that God has called us to be about, and in that position, we encounter God in those mundane seasons of life. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. Again, you may feel like you're there, but he came to Horeb. What's going to eventually be known as the mountain of God because later he would reveal himself to Moses in a special way there, begin to reveal his law and his truths. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame. The word angel of the Lord, angel is probably capitalized in your translation. The word means a messenger, a messenger of God. It's a phrase that was often used to describe a situation in the Old Testament that we call a theophany, when God himself took on a visible form of some kind and appeared to man, like the fourth Man in the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast in the fire, and they were asking Nebuchadnezzar was saying, "How many did we cast in?" Well, well, three. Well, why do I see four? And the the fourth as as the Son of Man, and it's it's a picture there, our Son of God. It's a picture there of a theophany. We might even call that one specifically a Christophany, a preincarnate appearance of Jesus Christ Himself as this. Manifestation of God in the Old Testament. We see Moses encountering God here in a burning bush. I don't believe this was just one of what many try to argue that uh, there was in the deserts in the Middle East these. Bushes that could just experience spontaneous combustion. Well, that's not what happened here. The bush didn't burn up. It wasn't one of the the oily plants that would just kind of light up a little. It wasn't something that was normal or natural because if it was normal or natural, after 40 years in the wilderness, Moses would have said, oh, I've seen that before. This was something that he had never experienced before. It was a bush. It was a flame because the presence of God was there and it was not being consumed. Moses looked and he saw the bush was on fire but was not consumed, so he thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had come to look, he begins to call him by name. God knows who we are. He knows where we are. Moses knew that he was in the presence of God. God would say, remove your sandals. You're on sacred ground. And we need those sacred moments to where we are overwhelmed with the presence of God, that he is at work, that he is present in your life, he's in my life. Do you have those moments where you know that God is real and that he is here? It can happen on the backside of the desert. It can happen on a walk through the woods. It can happen in a worship service like this. It can happen anywhere you get still before God. I've had those moments where I was driving down the road in my car and I felt like I just needed to reach over to the passenger seat and take the hand of Jesus because I was so overwhelmed with an awareness of his presence. Now, he was always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, but what changes is our awareness of his presence. Moses became mightily aware of God's presence. It's what happened to Abraham when he was 75 years of age and he had an encounter with the living God, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a great name. You'll be the father of nations. That encounter with God would cause him to pack up and move and do something, to to start something for a a nation, for a people of God, meaning that he would maybe God gave him a glimpse with the stars and with the sands as he kind of said, Man, as your, your descendants will be like this. M- maybe he let him look into the, the, the 1980s. <laughs> Abraham, look ahead. There's going to be a youth group at Trinity Baptist Church. And, and they're going to be doing these songs with funny motions, singing, Father Abraham had many sons. And, and they're going to be singing about you, Abraham. An encounter with God changed his life and changed this world forever. Jacob, this dysfunctional son of Isaac, would be a trickster and a cannabra who would also have the tricks played on him again and again as well, living a seemingly dysfunctional life. And then one night, his penile experience, he would wrestle with an angel of the Lord, another theophany, I believe, because he took hold of this messenger, and he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. That encounter changed his life. He would walk with a limp after that wrestling match, but he would know that he had wrestled with God and that he had won. Not that he had defeated God, but that he had won victory in his own life because of an encounter with the true and living God that God came to where we are in the New Testament when Jesus, God the Son, put on flesh and was dwelling among us, revealing his glory among us. And he comes to fishermen like James and John and Peter and Andrew. They have a, a divine encounter with a true and living God who had put on flesh and was walking among them. And they might have their doubts But after the resurrection, they would turn the world upside down, Uh, understanding that Jesus had risen and that his spirit had come upon them. They would be called those ordinary, unschooled men who had turned the world upside down. Men like Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the church, wasn't looking for Christ, persecuting those who were following Christ, but on a road to Damascus, Jesus would reveal himself, and Paul would go away blinded but singing, I saw the light, right? He would know that his life was forever changed as Ananias would come and pray for him, and the scales would fall off his eyes, and he would begin to not only see physically but see spiritually and become the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Do you hunger for an encounter with God? Do you have to force yourself to get into the Word? Do you have to force yourself to have a daily quiet time? And listen, if it's discipline, that's okay. If you have to work hard to do it, that's fine. But I want you, and I pray that I will come to a greater place of hunger and thirst for the presence of God, that we would so hunger and thirst for an encounter with God that we would feel like we're starving when we're missing it. The story was told, I don't know if it's true or not, but the story was told of a man who came to Socrates. Socrates that great philosopher, and he said, Socrates, I want knowledge. Can you give me what knowledge? I, I want wisdom. C- can you help me learn how to discover wisdom? And they say that Socrates took his head, and I don't know if it was a sink or a, or a basin of water, a tub of some kind, but, but they say that he took the man's head and pushed it underwater. This was waterboarding before the modern day times, right? He pushed his head underwater and let him up and said, do you want what? And he said, Oh, great Socrates, I want wisdom, I want knowledge. He didn't know what this baptism was all about, but he said, I want knowledge. And he took the man's head and he held it under for 10 or 12, 15 seconds, I don't know, but he held it under for a little bit longer and took his head out again and he said, what do you want? And he said, I want knowledge, I want wisdom. So he took and he held his head under for nearly a minute. And when he brought his head back out, he said, what do you want? He said, air, I want air, I can't breathe, I need air. And Socrates said, when you get to the place where you want knowledge and wisdom as desperately as you just wanted air, then you will begin to gain knowledge and wisdom. When we as a church, when we as followers of Jesus Christ get to the place where we want an encounter with God, we want to experience the presence and the power of God in our lives as desperately as we need the air that we breathe, I think we'll begin to be more aware of how he's already there, how he's already at work, and he's already meeting that need that we had for the encounter in your personal life as well as in your hunger to be with the people of God in the place of worship on a regular basis. Now, The encounter was not just where it ended. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just come together Sunday after Sunday and kind of work something up? Listen, I'm all about excitement and enthusiasm and emotion. If we came together week after week after week, though, and we worked something up, Rather than encountering the true and living God, we had an emotional experience. We had some kind of movement, and we went away talking about, oh, wasn't that a great encounter? And that's all that we talked about. We'd be missing the point. God got Moses' attention for a purpose. And next we see in this passage an explanation of God's agenda. He got Moses' attention because he had an agenda to reveal something that we are all to be about even to this day. Look at verse 7. It says, The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people. We're reminded again and again in chapters 3 and 4, at the end of chapter 2, God saw what was going on. He says, I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. And I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land, from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That awesome time, a, a land flowing with honey. He says, I've got everything that you need, I'm, I'm providing it for you. The territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, flashlights, mosquito bites, right? The Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way of the Egyptians, or the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I want to come, I want to meet with God, but I don't know that I want to hear his voice tell me that when I leave this place, I'm to leave on mission, go. But God always gathers us to give us an assignment to reveal his agenda so that when we leave, we are about his business Monday through Saturday, that it's not just something that's happening for a little bit of time on Sunday morning. Therefore, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. (laughs) Wait a minute, I don't want to go back to him so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God was about liberating people. God is still about liberating people. We sang it in our praise a moment ago, and we're to live it out daily in our lives. God is a God of liberating people. He would use different methods in this day and time. He would use the plagues, and he would use the parting of the sea, but he was going to liberate his people with his leader, Moses. The mission, however, while the methods change, the mission remains the same. He is about setting people free. You go back when Jesus, you say, what, what, what changed with the gospel? God's still setting people free. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to Nazareth. This is verses 16 through 19. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Remember, a prophet's not without honor, except in his own country among his own people, Jesus had said. But he came back to Nazareth. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That was part of his pattern to be in the place of worship. The scroll By by the way, it says, and he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unscrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He goes on to say in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. He says, I am here to liberate. I am here to set people free. Jesus would say the same thing to his disciples. If you read the story of Matthew Chapter 10, when he's sending out his disciples two by two, he's sending them out to share the good news of the kingdom, and he's, he's, he's sending them out in power to bring healing and restoration, but ultimately he's sending them out to set people free from the oppression that they were under, not just political oppression, more importantly, spiritually oppressed by the demons of this world. The methods God calls for. May seem impossible and they change from generation to generation, but the mission stays the same. It is still to liberate people. The method for us that seems impossible may be engaging this culture, it may be building a new worship facility, not for the glory of man, not to say, look what we're doing, but so that we might become stronger as a mission center reaching our community, our state, our nation, and our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That its impact would not only be here, but it would continue to grow where we're serving in places like Peru and India and the uttermost parts of the world. We've got to value people if we want to liberate people. That's what the Holy Spirit encounter is all about. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, that Holy Spirit encounter is to empower you to be a faithful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ every day of the week, every day of your life. And so God's explaining his agenda here is to liberate his people. Moses would have to love those people and value those people, and that love would grow. God would instill that love in him. I believe that with all my heart. God gives you a love for people, but he wanted to see them set free. Do you value people that much? Does it bother you that even in rural northeast Georgia in the Bible Belt, 80% of the people who live in Madison County, Georgia, do not profess to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? The demographic study of a four-county area Outside of Clark County, we're not talking about Athens where lostness is even greater, but in Madison, Hart, Franklin, and Elbert, of all four of those counties, Madison County had the greatest percentage of lost people and a higher population. And so while we act like sometimes we're in competition with other churches, it's time for the churches to work together to put a dent in the darkness that's in this community and then take it to the uttermost parts of the world. At least 22,000 lost people right here in Madison County that don't know the Lord. Do we value those souls? A teenage boy came into the house one day, had been playing basketball in the driveway, and he said, Mom, I lost a contact lens. And she said, Well, get out there and look for it. He said, I did. I looked everywhere. I can't find it. She went out there, and in a matter of about 10 minutes, guess what? She found the contact lens, came back in, and he said, I don't understand how you found it. I looked hard. I didn't see it anywhere. She said, it's because you were looking for a little piece of plastic. I was looking for $150. When we start to value something, right, when we start to value something, we care. And when we value the lost souls in our community and our world, we'll say, okay, Lord, what's your agenda? How can I help? How can I be involved? How can I be empowered to do what you've called me to do? There was an explanation of this agenda to liberate, and Moses is ready to kind of contemplate that a little bit. And so finally, I want you to see that where God would bring him to. And we'll have to summarize the rest of the chapter in a little bit of chapter four, but there's an expression of confidence in God's providence, an expression of confidence in God's Providence. What do we mean by God's providence? I mean the fact that he was with you, he is in you, and he will empower you, and he'll provide every resource you need to do what he's called you to do. Where he guides, he will always provide. This contemplation and counting the cost is okay, but there's a wrong answer at the end of that contemplation. There's a wrong answer. The wrong answer is to say, okay, Lord, I've thought about it, and I'm not going to serve you. I referred to it recently when, in, in John chapter 6, When all the crowds were leaving Jesus and he looked at his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter responded, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. We're with you, Jesus. We're with you to the end. Moses would also contemplate and ask some questions. Recently on a Wednesday night in our Bible study, we looked at these questions. Moses asked, first of all, in verse 11, who am I? (laughs) Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt. God said, I will certainly be with you. This will be a sign that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Moses asked, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent you. They asked me, what is his name? What will I tell them? That's another question he had. What a... What am I supposed to say? God gives him the words to say, and that's where we get the, the name for God, that name, Yahweh, the I am that I am." He says, "Listen, I am all that you need, I am your source, I am your sustenance." And that name would become a name that they would never be allowed to take in vain without severe punishment, because it was a holy name that reminded them of the sacredness of God's presence in life of Moses and the life of His people from generation to generation. What will I say? Jesus told his disciples, you go and I'll give you the words to say when you go. And then he had the question, when you get down to chapter 4 that we all have, what if they won't believe me? Anytime we have an encounter with God, the danger of our response is saying, but what if? God, what if it doesn't work out? I'm risking something here. What if, what if, what if? Remember what those three Hebrew children I referred to a moment ago said when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God is able to deliver us. But they went on to say, but if not, we still will not bow. We will uh, will obey God and leave the results up to him. So a lot of times we have a what if. God calls us to step out in faith and do something phenomenal that we can't do in our own strength like Moses couldn't do this in his own strength so that we have to fully rely on God in the process to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or even think. And we say, what if? And God is looking for people who will say, God is able. And if he chooses not to work in the way we thought he would work, we're going to trust him anyway. Two things for sure in life. There is a God and we're not him, right? So let's just trust God for the results. It's not about who you are, but who he is, and he is the I am. Again, in the gospel, we see Jesus come on the scene in John's gospel with seven times where he referred to the I am statements. He would say, I am the bread of life. I'm the source, the sustenance. I'm all that you need. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd, the shepherd who never lets go. He would say at the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life, and he would call Lazarus from the grave. And in case you're looking for a plan B, well, I don't really like the approach Jesus had. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the one who is with us, the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. Gary Smalley and John Trent in their book, The Gift of Honor, relayed this story I want to share with you in closing today. They wrote, something took place in the fall of 1944 that can explain a major reason many children are facing losing battles in families today. He said it was late October when an officer commanding a platoon of American soldiers received a call from headquarters. Over the radio, this captain learned his unit was being ordered to recapture a small French city from the Nazis. And he learned something else from headquarters as well. For weeks, French resistance fighters had risked their lives to gather information about the German fortifications in that city and they had smuggled this information out to the Allies. The French underground efforts had provided the Americans with something worth its weight in gold. A detailed map of the city. It wasn't just a map with the names of major streets and landmarks. It showed specific details revealing the enemy's Location, the enemy's defensive positions. Indeed, the map even identified shops and buildings where German soldiers bunked or, were, or where a machine gun nest or a sniper had been stationed. Block by block, the Frenchman gave an account of the German units and the gun emplacements they manned. For a captain who was already concerned about mounting casualty lists Receiving such an information was considered an answer to prayer. Although the outcome of the war wouldn't depend on just this one skirmish, to him it meant that he wouldn't have to write as many letters to his men's parents or wives telling them their loved one had been cut down in battle. Before the soldiers moved out to take their objective, the captain gave each man a chance to study them out. I don't know about you, but I would have studied them out. But he gave them each a chance to study them out several hours. And wanting to make sure his men read it carefully, he hurriedly gave them a test covering the major landmarks and the enemy strongholds. Just before his platoon moved out, the officer graded the test. He wanted to know that they had studied the map. They they knew where everything was. And with only a few minor exceptions, every man earned a perfect score. As a direct result of having them out to follow, the men would go on to capture the city with unbelievably few lives lost. Nearly 30 years after this event in the 1970s, after this military operation took place, an army researcher Heard about the story and decided to base a study on it. Using the map and the letter, the project began in France, where instead of a platoon of soldiers, he arranged a group of American tourists. That would have been fun to be a part of, wouldn't it? He took American tourists to help him with his research. For several hours, the men and women were allowed to study the same map that the soldiers had. Then they were given the same test you could guess the results. Most of the tourists failed the test miserably. The reason for the difference between these two groups was obvious. The motivation. Knowing their lives were on the line, and I might add a nation and a world, the soldiers were highly motivated to learn every detail of the map. The tourists being in A research study provided some motivation, but most of them had nothing to lose but a little ride if they failed the test. We gotta remember what we're battling for. We've got to remember what we're encountering God for, what his agenda is and why it matters in this world. We're fighting for the souls of lost men and women and boys and girls who will step into eternity without Christ separated him forever and ever and ever. We've got to get in this word. Know it. Know God's agenda. Study our culture and know how to make a difference in that culture because lives depend on it. I pray that you will have an encounter with God regularly, that you will discover his agenda for your life and for your home, for this church and that you will express confidence that he has provided us the map his strategy pointed out the strategy of the enemy and said now church listen let's do this let's do this let's get involved in what God's called us to do would you bow your heads with me this morning Father we pray even now that we would have an encounter with you. For many of us, we already have this morning. We can't deny that we have come face to face with you in our worship. And as the word was opened, you begin to explain your agenda. And as we walk through the doors at the end of this service, we're to walk with a confidence in God's providence. Being obedient to the call you've placed on our life. And Father, in large part, we already, all of us know what that is. We're to go and liberate. We're to go and set people free with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the specific details will be different from one workplace to another, one home to another, one neighborhood to another, and one school to another. So may we take the hand of Jesus and be filled with the Spirit and walk with you and get in on that agenda. As we walk in obedience, reveal your details for us. We trust you. May we demonstrate that trust with obedience today, we pray in Jesus' name.